Father, it is once again a great privilege and pleasure to uh, have the liberty, the opportunity to meet, to study your word, to fellowship with the saints, and to glorify you. And today as we study your word, Father, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, speak to us where we live, Father. And uh, let us not leave class or, or the worship service unchanged because we've met you. So, Father, I, I ask that you would uh, empower Dave and Pastor Bob today as they teach, empower the uh, worship team. Uh, let everything we do today be to your glory, Father, in, in song, and study, and giving, and prayer, and fellowship. We ask this in Jesus' name. We're going to start out in Psalm 69 this morning. Psalms, Psalm 69. Um, before, before we jump into our study this morning, I uh, wanted to let you all know that uh, Doug Pepper, our brother who uh, often sat down here at the end uh, next to Lipsy's, um, has passed away. He passed away on Wednesday. He had been struggling for a long time um, with cancer in actually about 10 years and uh, um, had had a lot of success in battling that. And uh, I think it was about six months or so ago, he, you probably noticed he kind of quit coming. And it wasn't because he was interested in, in uh, studying the word elsewhere. He just wasn't able to come. And he's a very uh, private man. And those of you that got to know him, uh, he's he's the kind of guy that um, I'm sorry. Uh, he's the kind of guy that uh, he makes you want to be a better person when you know him. Because he wonderful. Uh, so I'll leave it at that. Obviously. Uh, anyway, uh, it was a, a private memorial uh, today uh, for Doug, and uh, his family has come in uh, to celebrate his life, and we can celebrate his life too, even though we may miss him a lot. Uh, he is with our, our Lord now, so it's a wonderful thing. I'm sorry. You have the race very well. James said he's a private person. He didn't want a lot of the people to even though he actually been suffering for a long time. And I was thinking about sure that uh, he lived his He didn't want to take the things away from Christ and train it again. So he, uh, he served the Lord very well and was very involved in Take a look at Psalm 69. Uh, Psalm 69 is uh, 
to Psalm of David, and I've been pondering a lot lately, um, living in the world but not being of the world and how that affects us, uh, knowing our Lord and in knowing Him and His righteousness and His goodness and His desire um, to give us life. Um, and yet what we see in the world is it's messed up, right? So I, I go to Psalms of David a lot. And the reason I do is because David had a very unique way of being able to share um, what, from a human perspective, what that revelation of God looks like and how it convicts us and how it challenges us, how it encourages us. Um, and that's, that's when, one of the things about this psalm, Psalm 69, Psalm of David. So uh, whoever's got Psalm 69 in front of them and would like to read it out, I encourage you to do so. Save me, O God, for the floodwaters are up to my neck. Deeper and deeper I sink into the mire. I can't find a foothold. I'm in deep water and the floods are below me. I'm exhausted from crying for help. My spirit is parched. My eyes are swollen with weeping, waiting for my God to help me. Those who hate me without cause outnumber the hairs on my head. Many enemies try to destroy me with lies, demanding that I give back what I didn't steal. O oh God, you know how foolish I am. My sins do not be hidden from you. Don't let those who trust in you be ashamed because of me. O sovereign Lord of heaven's armies, don't let me cause them to be humiliated, O oh God of Israel. For I endure insults for your sake, humiliation is written all over my face. Even my own brothers pretend they don't know me. They treat me like a shame. Passion for your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. When I weep and fast, they scoff at me. When I dress in burlap to show sorrow, they make fun of me. I am the favorite topic of town gossip, and all the drunks sing about me. But I keep praying to you, Lord, hoping this time will show me favor. In your unfailing love, O God, answer my prayer with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mud. Don't let me sink any deeper. Save me from those who hate me, and pull me from these deep waters. Don't let the floods overwhelm me, or the deep waters swallow me, or the pit of death devour me. Answer my prayers, O Lord, for your unfailing love is wonderful. Take care of me, for your mercy is so plentiful. Don't hide from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in deep trouble. Come and redeem me, free me from my enemies. You know of my shame, scorn, and disgrace. You see all that my enemies are doing. Their insults have broken my heart, and I am in despair. If only one person would show some pity, if only one would turn and cover me. But instead, they give me poison for food. They offer me sour wine for my thirst. But the bountiful table set before them become a snare, and their posterity become a trap. But their eyes go blind so they cannot see, and make their bodies shake continually. Pour out your fury on them, consume them with your burning anger, but their homes become desolate, and their tents be deserted. To the one you have punished, they add insult to injury. They add the pain of those you have hurt. Pile their sins up high and don't let them go free. Erase their names from the book of life. Don't let them be counted among the righteous. I am suffering and in pain. Rescue me, O God, by your saving power. Then I will praise God's name with singing, and I will honor him with thanksgiving. For this will please the Lord more than sacrificing cattle, more than presenting a bull with its horns and head. The humble will seek their God at work and be glad. 
but all who seek God's help be encouraged. For the Lord hears the cries of the needy, he does not despise his imprisoned people. Praise him, O heaven and earth, the seas, and all that move in them. For God will save Jerusalem and rebuild the towns of Judah. His people will live there and settle in their own land. The descendants of those who obey him will inherit the land, and those who love him will live there in safety. Amen. So any time I'm reading through the Psalms, and David does this a lot, he'll have uh, what they call imprecatory verses, where uh, he basically says, God, take your flamethrower and roast him. You know? um, he, uh, and we read that, and it's like, wow, that's really harsh. Right? I mean, here we have this incredible contrition of the heart, uh, appealing to the loving kindness of God and his goodness, and a desire uh, to be near him, and then you have these imprecatory things. You see this also in other psalms that we quote often, and what will happen is people will read, be reading along about the loving kindness of God and the goodness of God, and then they'll come to the imprecatory part and they'll just kind of skip over it until the next part where it's talking about the loving kindness of God. But it's important that we understand why that's in there, and that um, God has no place for evil in his kingdom. He has no place for sin in his kingdom. Um, there is no place for a heart that is not wholly devoted to him and the life that he brings in his kingdom. And what those imprecatory verses are about is that um, it's not right that the wicked would enjoy the same destiny as the righteous. And it's a, it's a firm statement that that will not happen. And we need to, to read those in the same kind of um, contrition, contrite heart ourselves, <clears throat> that we read the verses preceding it and after it. And that it's a righteous and just God that loves us and has made a way for us um, such that we can choose him and not participate in evil and have life. And that and that and that's an incredible thing. And so... I, you know, I, I love these kinds of psalms, not for the imprecatory verses, but because of what it tells me about who God is. And when we look at uh, John, which we're now going to get to this morning, we're still in chapter 2, uh, because we tend to move slow. That's, I apologize for that. Um, what is John's primary purpose in writing to us? That's right. So when somebody says, "Why did why did why is the book of John in the Bible? Why did John take the time out of his life to write all this stuff down?" And it's because he wants us to know who God is. You know, and and I told you I would do this probably every week, and I'm not going to fail this week. We read John twenty thirty one. It says, uh, and I'll always back up, give you a little bit of context. Says, you know, there's many other signs that Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So we want to know who Jesus is. And we want to not just... Uh, know in the sense of, okay, he's a historical figure like Napoleon, right? Um, people don't dispute 
who Napoleon was as a historical character, but there's something about the character of this man, Jesus, that um, is revealed to us, that he is the Son of God, and that we're um, asked to believe that, because there's a lot of evidences given, and we're going to see the evidences that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And the end of that is, is that we'll believe, that we'll embrace that, we'll own that. Um, I know some in here have been struggling with Jehovah's Witnesses coming to their door and arguing against the divinity of Christ. What I would say is that John is all about helping us understand the divinity of Christ, the sonship of Christ, how um, our one God um, comes to us in three persons, how he reveals himself to us in three persons. And John's all about that, right? That we'll know, that we'll believe, and that in believing, we will have life in him. That we will remain, that we will abide, right? And so that's what John is all about. Um, So one of the things we should be asking every time we read any passage, let's not take it out as a single story, but rather look at it in the context of the whole. What is this telling telling us about who Christ is? What is this telling us about the character of Christ? And what is this telling us about the mission or the purpose of Christ? So I'm going to read chapter 2 of John again, and there are two separate little vignettes here. One is about a wedding One is about a temple cleansing. And uh, we're going to take apart some of the complexities of uh, these. We kind of examined the wedding last week. We're going to examine the temple cleansing this week. I would say before we start that the two are related. Because John could have written many things, right? But he wrote these so that we would know that Jesus is the Christ. And that... Um, believing in him, we would have life in his name. So that's, think about that, that these are carefully chosen to tell us something about who Christ is, um, his character, and his mission and purpose. So it says in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, and he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. 
the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So I'm going to take you back to last week. We'll look at the first vignette here. And I'll suggest that the two are related. And uh, in the way that, one of the ways that they're related, if we look down a little bit further here, I gave the outline in a, in a very broad way of John. One of the ways that they're related is that um, we understand that these passages are telling us about how Jesus is both the replacement and the fulfillment for institutions of religion, what religion was supposed to uh, represent um, up to that point in history. And I would say after that point in history, there was actually no need for religion because he fulfilled it. So Judaism was completed, what that was to express about the nature and character of God and the mission and purpose of God was completed in Christ's uh, crucifixion and resurrection. He fulfilled that revelation. And that um, in that sense, he is a replacement fulfillment and that which comes after, if we continue a religious practice, we should honestly question, is this about man or is this about God? Because God came to man. And we also see that the, in addition to the institutions of Judaism, which I've listed here as a, a wedding, a temple, a rabbi, and a well, um, we also have specific festivals, which were times that were uh, intended to express something about the, the person, character, purpose of God um, and what he is doing in his redemptive mission here. Right? The, these festivals were about that, helping us understand what God is doing and who he is. Um, and that Jesus, again, fulfills that. And he's the replacement for those festivals, those institutions. So in Judaism, that was the Sabbath, the Passover, the Festival of Tabernacles, and Hanukkah. At least those are the ones that John's going to uh, help us understand a little bit better. What I would say, the extension to that in our day since we're not Jewish, is that this morning we're going to share in communion. Communion, from a Baptist perspective, is a memorial. It's uh, remembering what Christ has done. That he died for our sins, 
that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day to conquer death, to show that death was conquered, to show that, in fact, we are forgiven and have new life in him, right? So what we do in communion is we remember that. We remember the new covenant, which is in his blood, which the Jews celebrated in wine. So we have our festivals today, and we continue in our festivals, but they're all about Jesus, as opposed to uh, getting caught up in some of the other potential meanings, which Jesus is going to challenge. He challenges the Sabbath. He challenges the Passover. He challenges the Festival of Booths, Tabernacles. Um, So he's expressing who he is, right? We want to know the Christ. So when we looked at a marriage, um, what did we say about a marriage? What did we say about, what does it say about Jesus' person, his character, and his mission or purpose? Let's just pick the first one. What does this story about the wedding tell us about um, Jesus' person? So person would be essence. Um, you know, when you think of, of me as a person, you see a, an image of me, kind of scraggly beard, um, occasionally leak a little bit. Um, so that you're, you're seeing some expression of my person. Alan? Well, Jesus approves of weddings, but then again, he officiated at the very first wedding, he was the one who made us male and female so that together we would express the image of God. Yeah, so you see um, in, in Christ's person at this wedding an affirmation of um, the design of God, the way he created things. So I, would, I would say rather than revealing the person, that probably reveals the purpose or mission a little bit more. But I agree with that. But I, I would say that it's more on what his mission is. What about his person? What does this tell us about his person? Who he is? He was kind to his mother because his mom asked him, do something. Yeah. <laughs> he could have just ignored her. No, my time's not right. I'm not doing it. You know? They draw a lot of parallels to him as the bridegroom as well. So we, we see some of the, the parallels that... Um, the person of God is that which we are to be drawn to in the sense of the bride is drawn to the bridegroom and the bride prepares herself for the <coughs> and so we see that uh, revealed in the New Testament pardon? and the bridegroom prepares the prepares a place yeah. right? and we see that in John as well the whole issue about uh, his mother one of the questions I would ask is what if his mother was not in this story? Would Jesus have still turned the water to wine? If he was there, would somebody else have brought to his attention the, the issue that the joy was running out? <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really good um, this, what Joshua was saying last week about what, how he brought up the wine being a symbolism of joy and, yeah. and everything that he said there. Was... And, and you see that symbolism in there and that wine was central to the celebration. Um, and what it expresses, and so we see that symbolically that wine was was important. Um, 
to the celebration of God's design, right? And so we understand that and there's a lot of different pictures that we can draw and associate, try to better understand it's not the alcohol in the wine, right, that is being emphasized here, but the place that it holds within the, uh, the celebration. What, is, what does it mean to come to God's table? There's great joy. And guess what? The best uh, is yet to come. Yeah, the best is yet to come. And it doesn't run out. Right? It's more than they started with. Potentially the reason why wine is the um, article of joy is because it, the time that it takes to to have good wine, it's not something that you can just you know say, oh, I'm going to make a good wine and just need to whip out the ingredients. It takes time and care to and finesse in order to have it be the proper the proper joy. Right. It's not without intention. I guess is what you're saying. And that wine doesn't, you don't, you know, walk along the street and come across a puddle of wine because it's just not natural that way. It, it requires intention to take that which God has created and intended. Right. So we, we see all of those kinds of images. But again, what does this tell us about the person of Christ? I see it's, a, it's an identity of humanity, it's identifying with humanity. He's partaking in. Yes. In, in those uh, festivals and meeting with relatives and, and that kind of stuff. Yep, he's fully human. He's all in. What else does it tell us about about him as person? Alan? Well, jumping off uh, Karen's point, he's a good son. He's a good he's son. He's keeping the commandment to honor your father and your mother. Yep. So I would say that that reflects on his character. <laughs> that his character is being reflected here. What, what else do we see in this about uh, his person, though? He shows himself as also being God, as his glory is being revealed. Exactly. Not only is his humanity fully expressed, he's all in, but his divinity is fully expressed. And that we see that in the final verse. It says, this beginning of his signs Jesus did at Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. What does that mean, that he manifested his glory? He's manifesting the divine uh, nature of Christ. That um, when we understand a person, we need to understand that this person is unique. He is both fully God and fully man. And John wants us to see that. That's why this was chosen as one of those things. So we see that uh, this is telling us about the person of Christ and that he's uh, divine. Um, the character of God is that um, he, what I wrote down, was he acts on behalf of humanity. So he comes to this wedding, the wine is run out, right? And he recognizes um, that what we're designed for is to partake in joy. The, what God created us for is to celebrate his creation, to celebrate him, to celebrate life. Um, we talk, you know, when we give pictures of angels, right, we, we picture great choirs singing out the glory of God, right? It's that expression. That's what this celebration is about. It's singing out from a human perspective the glory of God. And God acts on behalf of humanity to enable that. That it's a cooperative, in a sense, um, 
type of an activity. You know, we also think the same thing about faith. So if this is to know who God is, we also want to understand how we come into belief. Well, I would suggest that faith is both a gift from God, but it's also something that we act on that gift. So we participate in that gift. And that that's, in a way, what David is, is when he uh, cries out in a psalm, uh, to God, God has given a revelation to him and empowered him with uh, an understanding uh, that he is uh, enlightened about the nature of God. And David's also enlightened about the nature of fallen humanity and what God is doing in that. And he cries out, he expresses this both joy in God's loving kindness and despair over the, the fallen nature of humanity as a result of sin. <clears throat> so we see that in that Jesus, his character is, is expressing that God is acting on behalf of humanity. And I would say that there's also personal aspects of that as well. Caring for one's mother, right? As Karen pointed out. Ken? Uh, it seems the part where he his response to his mother when she um, says to him, but if the wine's run out, the wine says, what does this have to do with me? It makes, uh, makes it feel, or it puts the tone, therefore, the, him being human and acting for humanity, um, it kind of illustrates that to me because, uh, you know, nothing about his tone to his mother or anything, just basically, why would he have anything to do with maybe, or the wine running out, you know, and why should he, but yet he does, because he cares. Yep, about the, he cares. The festival. Mm-hmm. Right. And that he cares, and he he uh, challenges his mother in saying, my time has not yet come. In other words, our purposes are a little bit different. Your purpose is so that the groom might not be um, embarrassed, mm-hmm. right, by running out of wine. My purpose is to, to save all of humanity, that they might not be embarrassed in the presence of a righteous God. My time has not yet come. But nonetheless, I care about where you are today. And I'm going to, I'm speaking in Jesus' voice here, I'm going to um, show you um, in an object lesson what, what I've come for is all about. And he turns water into wine. He did something that none of us could do. And what I would suggest is, in conquering death, he did something that none of us could do. And yet, we all need that. Without that, there is no joy. Right? So, Jesus is saying, you know, even though we have different purposes, I care. And I I think that whether Mary would have called it out, or somebody else would have called it out, Jesus would have acted exactly the same. But that we also see that Jesus was a man that was fully human, so he was in a human family. Right? So... We're seeing two aspects of who the Christ is. Fully man, fully God. Um, How about mission or purpose? I've heard it here today. Um, The best is yet to come. The mission is about redemption. It's about saving the marriage, saving God's original intent. Um, It's about saving people. 
right? And that he wasn't done yet. He was just getting started. That all that had been written up to that point in history came to this beginning. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. He manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So a lot packed in to this story about um, a wedding. And one of the, the, the particular place that he plugged in to this wedding um, has all sorts of uh, significance around purification. Right? That if you're going to be presented um, <coughs> bride to the groom and that you're going to celebrate that wedding, there's a purification that goes on before that, which is why they had those stone pots. Purification. Um, that brings us then to uh, the story of the temple. Dave? Yes? Um, the, just an amazing thing to me that stands out is um, it's in verse 2 and it's in the word invited. And it just shows me how God, God's son Jesus, he loved people so much that he was, he was in, involved in the community. Yes. And the people loved him. You know, they, they invited him into this, this uh, wedding celebration. Yes. And, um, and that he, you know, he and his disciples came and he, yet yeah, he was God's son. Yes. And he was fully in the lives of these people. Um, yep. He was fully in. And I saw a little bit on the, one of those church channels on TV, and it was at this wedding, and Jesus kind of like, he's rolling through the crowd and kind of dances with a couple of, of people, like, real quick, right? And uh, it was kind of funny to, to see that. Like, <laughs> well, and, and we know that those kind of things happen at the celebration, whether Jesus, I can't imagine, so we had this idea of Jesus as a non-human Right. Right? right, as not in a family, as not in a community. Totally um, there yeah, the he's standing off to the side. You know, well, I guess I'll turn the water into wine. Way too much. Like, no, he was, he was fully in. Yeah. Right. Now we don't have all the details of that, but I would, I, I think that that's true. I guess you could say he was a party guy, yet without sin. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the great yeah. psalms were all about the party. Yeah. Yeah. They took some flack for that later. Yeah. Remember the verse in Matthew? Oh, yeah. It says, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he has a demon. He wasn't a party guy. He right. didn't eat or drink. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they said... Behold, the gluttonous man and the drunkards, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by your deeds. Indeed, wisdom is vindicated by your deeds. So, so uh, who's to judge? Who's to judge when what happens is, is that everybody makes judgments all the time. I mean, when you come to a stop sign, you make a judgment. Can I roll? Should I turn left? Should I turn right? You're making all sorts of judgments, right? That's the way you're designed. You're designed to choose. Um, and so the, what happens is, is that we, in our, one of our choosings, we decide to define what good is, what right is, rather than what, listen to what God has declared that good and right is, and choose to believe that. Right? So we believe the lie instead of the truth. All the way back. We do that every day. And, you know, you're talking about the invitation. And I was thinking, how many times 
Do we invite God frivolously? I'm making my address list. Who do I want to be at the party? Today's a party. Who do I want to be at the party today? And I think, oh yeah, yeah, I should include God. Oh yeah, and his brothers too, right? Um, and it's frivolous. Because we're in the community, we're inviting the community, or are we imagining, um, no, 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 this is my creator. I want to um, answer his invitation, right? That he said, you know, come to me, open the door, I'm here. Um, and yet we, we approach it very human, very, it's, it's a frivolous, it's like, oh yeah, I'll include God. And oh, by the way, he better, you know, conform to my religious practice. Because if he doesn't, then, well, maybe he's not really God. Um, so we do that. And what God challenges us is no, we are to follow Christ. And that's a hard thing. Because that means we need to set aside some of our, what we think is good and right, and accept what God says is good and right, which is why those imprecatory psalms sometimes challenge me. I was just thinking now, when Mary, back to the Mary thing last week, um, all that discussion, but uh, if Mary would have said, or if Jesus would have responded, oh yes, Mother, I'll do what you want me to do. It would, it, it, we would not look at Christ the same way. Right. And I don't think we look at Mary the same way. Um, right? I mean, yeah. I, I think, I think Mary, I mean, I'm just thinking as a woman, I know that Jesus was, um, was not, you know, made of man. He's God. He, I mean, I met the angel. I didn't forget. Right. And he's 30 years old now. He's, <clears throat> I guess, maybe this is the, yep. when you're letting your, your men go. And so he, she's going to him like uh, you would go maybe to your husband or your father. You wouldn't go to your son and say, there's no But But she believed. She believed. She, she, believed, she believed that God even cares about um, the, the little details. Well, she's the only one that really knew. I mean, except for Elizabeth. Well, others others knew. Nathaniel knew. He was from Cana. Right? So that's why I'm saying sometimes I think we maybe put a little bit too much into uh, Mary suggesting that he should intervene in this way. Um, I think it's there for a good, good purpose, though. It's like Nathaniel didn't say, hey, dude, they're running out of wine. What are you going to do? Uh, Mary said it. Um, and one, it expresses her belief. Um, it um, also, in a reverential way, I believe, uh, distinguishes what a, a good person, a good person, I'm not going to say righteous, a good person. Mary was a good person, right? You know, those in the community around her, other than this uh, birth out of wedlock thing, um, she was a good person. And... Uh, a good person has an agenda to do good. Well, what does that good look like to Mary? And Jesus said, you know, we have nothing in common here. That's what he said. He's, he's uh, gently helping his mother understand there's a bigger picture going on. And yet he does. And so I think that take the most righteous person. We know that Nathaniel's been declared righteous or good, Right. Um, Mary, from the very beginning, is also, right? So it's like taking a good example. Not only that, let's choose a woman to boot. Let's show a good woman 
because in that culture, a lot of times women weren't seen as good. Right? So we're going to have a good woman, one that in, in, human, in whom is no, uh, no guile, and she's going to say, but aren't you concerned about this? And Jesus is going to say, yeah, I am concerned about that. I am concerned about all the details, but I'm concerned about the bigger picture. I'm concerned about eternal life. So I think that that's kind of in that, that dialogue too. And, I, and in some respects, um, I, I, I say that I want to not uh, downplay that this is Mary, but I also don't want to give it too much emphasis because I've seen other religious practice do that. Or they venerated Mary. It's like, no, she's human. Um, and there were other kids, and we get that in here. He has brothers. Was there any significance to Cana? Why was there? Or have you read her? Well, uh, Cana, as I pointed out, uh, I'll bring up the maps here, and I'll zoom in on it, pull it into view, and zoom in. So uh, Cana, in relation to Nazareth, so we've got Sea of Galilee right there in the middle. Let me grab my little pointer, which was given to me by Sharon Wisdy in the great day. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Sea of Galilee, and I don't have my glasses on, so I can't tell if this is in focus or not. Is this in focus? Pretty good. Does it need some work? Oh, sure. You can all see that in the background. Yeah, I'm friends. Okay, so Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is up here, mentioned in the story. Cana is over here in the hill country. There's a little dot right here, and hopefully you can see the brown and distinguish it from the green. The green is the low-lying areas in between, so that's the valleys. The brown is the peaks, and Cana is... Uh, in a hilly community. Nazareth is as well. Nazareth is right here. In fact, it's right on a ridge, and there's a kind of a precipice on one side of the, the city. These are both little towns, right? Capernaum's a little town too, but um, it's on the trade route. So um, if you're going to be going through uh, this route to either get into the Jordan River Valley, the King's Highway, or go to the coastal plain, you end up going through Capernaum. So it's a strategic little town. But Cana is nothing. Why Cana? It's nothing. What does that tell you? Well, common great things happen. That's right. You don't read about Cana anywhere else. Right? I mean, it's not like great prophets have come from Cana. It's not like Cana um, had, other than this miracle, any great works or anything good came out of Cana. And the same thing was said about Nazareth. Nathaniel said, does anything good come out of Nazareth? Okay. It's insignificant. there. Yeah, God cares. I was wondering during the week if it being a small town had anything to do with the story because of the fact that everyone in the town would have been at this wedding. Yep. And I wondered when I was thinking about that if um, that had anything to do with why Mary said, and pay the coins right now, knowing that that's the joy of the festival. Um, if she was 
if well, she meant more than just hey, make some wine. So, so let me give a little perspective here. Um, Cana, small community, to have wine available to the point of extreme inebriation um, of every resident in Cana and the surrounding community would only have taken, you know, three or four gallons. Serious. Because their wine was strong wine, um, the, the kind with alcohol in it, not new wine. Um, and there wasn't a lot of people because it's out in the middle of nowhere, even though they invited the whole community in, right? And Jesus wasn't just invited because he was uh, part of the community. I think the family had some familial ties there, that there was some significance. Um, but nonetheless, um, when, he, when Jesus turns the water into wine, how much does he make? Yeah. He, makes a, he makes a ton of wine. They are not going to run out of wine. And guess what? That is the best wine. It's, it's, they're not going to run out, and it is better than what they've got and could ever imagine. Um, I wonder if that has anything to do with... Um, Israel being God's chosen people, but there being enough of his love uh, to spill out of that into the rest of the, the world. God's, what I would say is kind of a general principle. If you want to look at what a principle, you can you read narrative and then you look at, well, what's the general principle, which is a timeless truth that you could pull out of this and support scripturally. Um, I think one of the things that you could... Um, one of the principles would be that God's provision doesn't run out. Like I said, this is just a small affair, small town, and when he fed the thousands off of a little bit of bread and a few fish, I mean, his... Right. That he never had more than was necessary, but he always had more than enough. And it never ended. So when people are worried about having what's necessary and we worry about food and clothing and shelter, God said, yeah, the Gentiles, they all worry about that. Don't worry about that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. God's provision is not going to run out. In the same way, manna. Yep. So we, we, we see that message repeated. And it, and it needs to be repeated because we're slow learners. Right? So, you know, there's a lot of principles we could pull out of there. And I would say one of the principles is, is that God cares. One of the principles is, is that that care is expressed in unlimited provision. Right? And that it is more than we could ever imagine. It's the best. Right? So there's a lot of principles that we can pull out of that. So when we're looking at who Christ is, what does this tell us about his person? It tells us that he's fully human, fully divine. Um, what does it tell us about his character? That God has compassion for his people. That's part of his character. Right? Um, and that that is both within the family and within the community. And I would say that it extends to the extent of his creation. God actually cares that Satan rebelled. I can't imagine, and the Bible doesn't tell us that Satan ever does repent, but if Satan repented and had a true change of heart, could God accept it? 
Now these are like, you know, pipe and beer type questions, yeah. right? The kind of stuff that, I, I say pipe and beer because that's what uh, C.S. Lewis used to do, you know, they used to go to the pub and smoke their pipes and drink their oh. ale. But, uh, and they pondered these things. Now, they're great paper exercises. We need to look at the Word of God, right? But what I would say is that the Word of God tells us that Christ will go to the full extent of the created universe to redeem us. And that that's an incredible expression of love. You see that in there? Now five minutes. Pardon? You got five minutes. Yeah, and I didn't even get to the second story. So they, they went to Capernaum. Um, and then we have no uh, temporal cue here. So one of the things that we've seen in our progression so far is that there have been temporal cues. On this day, the Pharisees came to John. On this day, John uh, saw Jesus and pointed him out to his disciples. On this day, and you see a progression of seven days. And I mentioned that you still have this temporal cue going on at the beginning of this passage. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. Now, that doesn't mean it was the third day of the week. It was the third day in this chronological progression. I say that because the wedding of a virgin would have occurred on a Wednesday, which is not the third day of the week. Um, so... This is what, what we're seeing is that there's a temporal cue in these, these uh, narratives, these stories as they've been uh, revealed to us so far. But then we have a break. There's no temporal cue here. He went to Capernaum. He's there for some days. And then it says the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So um, we're going to now see um, one of the institutions mentioned, even though this story is uh, about, um, or, uh, we're going to see two institutions. We're going to see the temple, and then we're going to see a uh, festival, uh, a Passover, that are referenced here. But what this story is about is about the institution. It's the institution of the temple. That's the focus. But the occasion was is that Jesus went to Jerusalem. So he's up here in Capernaum, and he's got to travel a good distance to get down here from Capernaum all the way down, in fact, it's a little bit further. Yet, he's got to go from here down to here. So that's a pretty good journey. How far is it? Uh, about 80 miles or so. It's more than a day's journey. It's probably like a three-day journey. Uh, at least because the uh, you, have, you have to go... Around the lake. Yeah. They come down they here. Avoid Samaria. They cross the they come down Jordan. Yeah. And Correct. cross back over the east bank of the Jordan. Yes. Yeah. So they come down here rather than fall on the patriarchal highway because they couldn't go through uh, Samaritan land. Which is and, and yet I would say that there is still a chronology displayed here. The occasion for Jesus to travel was that the Passover feast was going on and that part of the um, tradition of the Jews is that they would go to the major feasts, the major festivals in Jerusalem. So Passover is one, um, Tabernacles is one. And so they would, they would end up making this journey um, because that's what a good Jew does, right? So that's the occasion. But when he gets there, something happens. He goes into the temple... 
And he, he again, I would suggest that there's a, an element of purification in the story of the wedding. There's also an element of purification. He goes into the temple and he purifies it for its what its intended purpose was. Right? What is the temple about? It's the place where people come to God and God comes to the people. Right? It's not about um, selling and doing that. So, so that's the story, right? But what I would suggest is that after this, he goes back through Samaria, and we have the story of the well. And then we have subsequent events that would occur in a chronology. So the problem that we have with this passage, and I'm going to present this problem, and the reason I bring up these temporal cues, is it looks like this story is out of place when you look at the other Gospels. Because there's a similar account in all of the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. However, the, the critical details are different. There's some commonality. There's a purification in the temple. But there's a lot of detail. This is the most detailed account. Not only that, but there are things that were brought up at Jesus' trial in this account. When they ask about the, his authority, which they question his authority in the other accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I'll give you the scripture references here in a minute. When they ask what authority he has, he uh, asks them a question about John the Baptist and what authority he had. And since they don't, they're not willing to answer, he's not willing to answer what his authority is. Completely different than what happens here. They say, what what authority do you have? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That was actually thrown in his face at his trial. There were those that came and testified, this guy said that the temple would be destroyed and that he would rebuild it in three days. They were talking about the physical temple. And they point out here, yeah, right, we've been building it for 46 years. It's not even going to be complete for another 30-some to yet to occur. Uh, Herod started building in 20 BC. So if you take this as around um, 30, 32 AD, right? They've been building for 46 years. Longer than that. It, depending on how you do this chronology. And so uh, it's 46 years they've been building, right? So what, um, why is this account different is one of the questions. Why are there no temporal cues other than the occasion of Passover? Is this the same incident that occurred in the other Gospels? So critical scholars would say, yes, it is. Um, anytime you see doubles in the Bible, typically um, it's a retelling of a single account. And so did John just take this account from his knowledge that occurred late, right when Jesus is being presented for Passover, and stick it in here, or is this a separate account? Jesus does have a habit of doing doubles because he feeds a large crowd twice. Yep. He calms the storm at least twice. Yep. He, can, he causes the disciples to have an amazing catch of fish twice. Yep. So cleansing the temple, not hard. Plus ruining funerals. Yep. <laughs> the widow of Nain and Lazarus you know, ruined a perfectly good funeral by raising the corpse back to yeah. life. That's right. In fact, when we read through John, that was the reason they wanted to crucify Jesus, is because by raising the dead, 
people started really believing in him. And they were concerned that people were believing. Not that he had done this civil disobedience thing in the temple. Right? Although it did make the priests an awful lot of money. Because the place he was running them out of was the yeah. of the Gentiles, which is where anybody from around the world was supposed to be able to go and worship God. Yeah. And they're being crowded out of the place where the nations can worship God because some other guys are in there figuring, hey, this is a great chance to make a pile. Yep. And in fact, Caiaphas had argued that it was appropriate to sell sheep in the temple proper. You know, there's the sheep gate that leads into the temple mount. Um, and that was so that the priests could bring in the sheep uh, prepared for and then prepare them for sacrifice. But Caiaphas, who was a high priest in the day, said, no, 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 we should be able to do the, the sale, the exchange of that. We should be able to do the business in the temple. Same thing with changing money. Same thing with offering doves. Right? And the things that you see that are different in this account have to do with that. Have to do with oxen and sheep and doves and money changers. Um, and you see detail here that's not in the others. You see an answer when Jesus is asked. Jesus, one, number one, doesn't quote scripture here. He doesn't call it a den of robbers. And he doesn't quote scripture from Isaiah and Jeremiah. Um, but rather... Um, what he does is he commands them to quit doing it. He says, don't do this. Get out of here. Um, it was a disruption, but I think what you would see, and this is probably where we'll end, because we're going to need to unpack this more, and it's a lot here. Um, what you see is the, the this is the only place in the Bible that you find this statement of Jesus, destroy this temple, and, and I'll rebuild it in three days. And that that was significant in his trial needs to tell us something. Did these people remember this after three years and throw it in his face? And if they did, how, how good were they with the details? And you actually see that they questioned the details. You look in the account of Mark, it's like, well, they couldn't agree on what he actually said. So I would suggest that this is an actual double, <coughs> as, you're, as you're pointing out. That there were two cleansings that they had different purposes in the sense of, of not, not a difference in the cleansing purpose, but a different uh, purpose in how it was challenging the people to know and believe Jesus, to know him, his person, and his character, and understand the purpose of God. So I'm, I'm, uh, we're out of time, and I know Daniel, and I know you've got a question too. Um, I have a comment, actually. Okay. I was going to say that it seems to show who he is as a person and his character by the way of how he communicates his response to destroy the temple and I'll raise it up in three days is a really, is very abstract to the question that's given to him, and which is how he, going right into chapter three, how he's communicating, how he talks in yeah. these abstract ways. Yeah. This is this is linked into discussion with Nicodemus. It's linked into discussion at the well. That's why I, I the way I organized it was that Jesus is challenging specific institutions, and uh, and that this is one of the institutions that's being challenged. And, and John didn't have to put it together non chronologically in order to do that. Um, so let's let's go ahead and, and close here. And I, and I know Dr. Goffin's got comment. Uh, if you can keep it for next week, that would be great.
Um, let's go ahead and close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come to your word, and it's just so rich that uh, that it's uh, difficult for us to, to move quickly, and we don't want to move quickly. We want to uh, capture that which you've preserved uh, and gone to great length uh, to bring to us so that we can know who you are, that we can believe that you are Jesus the Christ, and that uh, we have life in you, and that which you've done for us, that you love us so dearly. Lord, uh, we thank you for that. And uh, please give us the, uh, the tenacity, the strength, uh, the courage to read deeply and, uh, and be challenged, because your word does challenge us in many ways, Lord. And uh, we ask uh, that we be challenged, that we can rightly believe and draw near to you. And Lord, uh, we thank you so much for all that you're doing in our lives, um, the incredible provisions, that which we don't even uh, make conscious account of, and yet still you're in the process of providing for us. And Lord, we thank you for that. And uh, we thank you also for that which we know about, our jobs, our uh, the meals that we have and can share in our homes, all those different things, Lord. We thank you that you've provided for us so carefully. And Lord, uh, we thank you for the life that is in you. We thank you for your service to us, your uh, death on the cross, which you endured uh, willfully to save us, which is hard for us to imagine. Um, Lord, we just thank you for that. And we ask that you be with Bob this morning as uh, your spirit moves through him to bring your word to your people, Lord. We thank you for this. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.